Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Waiteka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, hi everybody and happy Monday to you wherever you are. I am delighted to have my guest with me today. Natalie Siston is joining me. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Marcia. Really, I, I am just so excited about about what we're going to be talking to, about today, which is your book, Let Her Out, Reclaim Who You've Always Been, which I must say, it's a sensational book. I, I love the way you've written it. I love the way you're – I just love everything about this book, and I want to thank you so much for sending that book to me, along with a beautiful package of cookies and a day planner and all kinds of things. That was so very generous and thoughtful of you. And I thought, and I know, honestly, let's just get this out here. This is a live show. This is a really big day where you live, isn't it? What's happening tonight for you guys? That's right. I am in Ohio, and the Ohio State Buckeyes are taking on the Alabama Crimson Tide in the national championship football game tonight. So it is got my scarlet and gray on, and we're going to be cheering hard tonight. Yes, indeed. I'm I'm excited for you, and I know it's the Ohio State. Um, but we're, before we before we talk about that, I just thought let's let's get to know you because you your book is fabulous, and I I always like to know something about my guests um, that inspires them to be who they are, and you grew up in a in a much different set of circumstances than I grew up in. You grew up in a town of 600 people in Republic, Ohio. Can you just tell us what it was like growing up in a small town like that? I sure can because that is, you know, that is my platform and where I started this whole line of dialogue, which turned into a book, which uh, my platform is called Small Town Leadership because I realized that everything I needed to know, I learned growing up in that small town. So not only was it, it, it is, it still exists, it's still about the same size as it was when I left it, but a small town in northwest Ohio, rural farm farm uh, land. So not only was it the 80s in Ohio, but it's also the middle of farming area, rural place. So what it meant growing up there is that community was at the center of everything. There was no social media. There was no digital anything. And your neighbors were your people, and they were the ones you talked to and you got your information from and you cared about. And the thing that I remember most about being in a small town is it really didn't matter what kind of terms you were on with anybody. But the moment somebody needed each other in that community, they were there for one another. That is probably the the thing that warms my heart the most when I think about small towns it's how people show up for each other that's why I put cookies in that box that went with my book because my mom was the queen of baking cookies and bringing them to the person in need or the person who just had the baby or the person who just passed away or who was new in town 
And so I like to think of things as simple as a cookie uh, to connect me back to my small town roots. That makes that makes sense. And those and that small town roots also included something I didn't grow up doing, which was the 4-H club. Correct? You were part of the 4-H club. <laughs> I was part of the 4-H club. So for those who are listening and don't know what 4-H is, it's oftentimes thought of as the agricultural program where kids on farms learn how to raise animals and that sort of thing. And I did not live on a working farm. I was surrounded by farmland but did not actually have animals or do crops. But I took 4-H and learned how to sew and cook and, most importantly, how to do public speaking. That was definitely my biggest uh, biggest learning and thing I did in 4-H. Isn't that interesting? Because you, you're right. You've dispelled that. I would never have thought. Maybe the cooking and the sewing, perhaps, but not public speaking. And how how old were you when you joined 4-H Club? I was eight years old when I joined the 4-H Club. Hmm. And do you have siblings, Natalie? I do I have an older sister, and she is two years older than me. And was she also in 4-H, so was she the 10-year-old and you were the 8-year-old? Absolutely, yeah. So, it's, it, And that was how, how our whole life went was basically, you know, Nikki went first and did the thing, and then two years later Natalie came along and got to do mm-hmm. that thing. That's cool. <laughs> that, that's, that's great. You know, I, when I, you know what I think of when I think of 4-H? Here, here's the thing that goes right to my mind, and that is when you would have these um, – um, country fairs, county fairs, I think they're called county here, um, and they would be in different parts of outside L.A. County, frankly, and you would go, and you're right, they would be, there would be like these pigs, and they were, they were or there were people riding horses, and they were all associated with the 4-H club that, that my memory connects to. Now, that may or may not even be accurate, but I do remember that there were also places where people made pies. Am I right about that? Was pie making another thing? Yes, you are absolutely right. Usually at the county fair, uh, there's, at least in Seneca County, Ohio, where I grew up, yes, you had your barns with the pigs and the cows and the chickens, and then you had your separate barns that had the the pies, the cookies, the canned jam and mm-hmm. the bit my favorite day of the fair was always when the uh the, the championship came of tasting all of the the cakes and pies and the, those were usually made by older people in the community because any of the 4-h kids would have made their stuff and had it judged before the fair but it would be the kind of elders of the community would bring you know the the champion cherry pie to the fairgrounds or whatever it might be. And there was one year when I was uh, runner up to be the queen of the fair. Mm-hmm. And as royalty, we got free reign of lots of things on the fairground. And part of that was to go be taste testers. And then as I like to say, the, the clean uppers of all of these, <laughs> rest of the pieces of the pie that weren't on display for everybody to see. So I I think in a small town, people learn how to cook and bake really, really well, and I've taken that yes. skill with me. <laughs> yes. Gosh, you know, because because a lot of what we're going to be talking about today are memories, I now remember that my neighbor, who's been my neighbor for 35, 40 years, she was the pie baker. She would go every year to the county fair to bring her pies um so that i that i 
really sort of forgotten about that. So that's that's a great memory. But I bet you that you mentioned, you know, how your mom would be so generous at baking cookies and taking them to neighbors' homes for happy reasons, for celebratory reasons, maybe for some sad some for some sad reasons. Um, was part of what you were accustomed to seeing. I was wondering if you think back to those times when you were living that way, because I can't, I mean, I live in a small community, I would say, and honestly, I say small, but that's relative. Los Angeles is a huge city. Where I live in Westchester is a community within the city of Los Angeles. I call it small because I feel like I know all my neighbors too, which of course I don't, but um, I've lived here my whole life, so it feels smallish to me, I suppose. Um, what kind of lessons would you say you learned growing up in a community that was 600 people? What, what, were, the, what were the major lessons? One of the lessons that I'll talk about here, you know, I, I do a lot of these conversations and I always want to try something different. So I'm going to bring uh-huh. something new to you today is that All right. this idea of growing up in a small town, I think people learn how to be really agile and they learn how to pivot really quickly. And this became really important for me last year, particularly in 2020, as you know, the whole world was pivoting. But one mm-hmm. day in, when I was in, in college, I, you know, we talked about I went to the Ohio State University. So I went from this super small town to a huge university. And um, I invited a group of my college friends to my house. And then we were all going to go to an amusement park the next day. That was my house was kind of on the way to that, that amusement park. So they all came to my house. And I was there early to help my mom get things set up. And all of a sudden, the cars start to pull into our gravel driveway. And one of my college classmates who grew up in Cleveland, he was a city kid, he got out of his car, he's like, hey, Natalie, we knew we were getting close to your house, and we started to see basketball hoops on the side of barns, and I remember my parents just cracking up laughing, because that was just super funny to them that that was his observation, and I, I think at the time, I did too, and talking about remembering, you know, as I started blogging and writing about these experiences, what that brought to the forefront to me was, I didn't know anything different. I thought it was completely normal for people to have a basketball hoop on the side of a barn. We didn't have, we didn't go to sporting goods stores and buy the, the, the thing that you, you know, drill into the ground or have the stand that sits on an asphalt uh, driveway. Cause we didn't have those. Most everybody had a stone driveway and usually next to the barn. And what that taught me was like people learned how to work with what they had there. So if you wanted to play basketball in a small town, you likely nailed that basketball hoop up onto the side of the barn. And those are the types of lessons I've learned in, from a small town is to be agile, to work hard, to be truly in community. And those matter no matter where we end up living in our life. That's, it's funny. I, I guess what's going to happen through this entire show are the memories that you are bringing forward to me. My, my dad had... Um, put a hoop on the garage door where I grew up. My husband put a hoop on the garage, not the door, because and I guess maybe it wasn't actually the door that my dad did that either. There was how could you open and close the garage door? So it must have been on the roof line. But it wasn't. That's that's where our hoop was too back in the days when when my son was was throwing a basketball around, and my husband grew up 
in the Midwest. He grew up in, in Detroit, and that was what they did. So I think that's kind of cool. And, and I can recall, as you say, that driving through uh, um, the eastern side of the uh, – and um, what am I trying to say? Where, where you could go up and down the east coast and you go into these rural communities when I would be watching all the leaves turn and the fall foliage. And, yes, every once in a while you'd see these barns with, with basketball hoops. I think that's really cool. But I think that your, your point was to be, to be agile, to be able to work with what you have, and, and it sounds like, and really appreciate it and appreciate your community, which I think is very, very important. So then you, so you start there. You find yourself going to the Ohio State, which is obviously a much different experience. How, what was that like for you going from a transition of something so small and, and um, intimate to something so large in a big city? Well, it was a varied response. It was, it was a unique experience. When I got there, I thought I was in heaven for the first two weeks because for the first time in my life, I could do things and not be caught or told on. And I was a good kid, so it wasn't like I had a bunch of things I was doing and hiding in a small town. But, but in a small town, everybody knows what everybody's up to, <laughs> especially yes. the things when you're up to no good. But so I go to college, <laughs> and, you know, I go to my first college party, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, no one will be able to tell who, anybody that I was here. I can kind of do whatever I want. So it was really freeing to say, oh, my gosh, I'm in a place where – you know, no one's, no one's going to go and, and know what I'm up to. But after a while, that just got really lonely. And that's when I started to figure out this idea of making wherever I was feel like Republic Ohio. And so I really made it my focus to make Ohio State feel like Ohio. I made it feel small by getting involved and making friends, taking leadership roles, getting to know people, making a difference, all these things that I learned growing up. I then just transferred that over into the Ohio State University campus, and it made it feel like a small town to me. And what did you study? I was a political science psychology major. Wow, true. And I believe you got a ma- you got a, a bachelor's and a master's degree there. Is that right? Yes, I came back after a four-year. I did live in California for four years in between undergrad and graduate school. I came back then to Ohio State. We Ohioans tend to come home, just what happens. Mm-hmm. And I came back and got my MBA at the Fisher College of Business. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's it's exciting. But I, I what I'm sensing just from your book and just this little bit of conversation is that you really respect family and you really respect the traditions in which you grew up in, which is why, and the comfort that that provided. And while it might not have provided you a lot of, you know, you people knew who you were. If you if you messed up, your mom was going to certainly hear about it. Um, but I like how you wanted to make that same feeling feel important. But at the same token, you understood the value of leadership and you saw yourself as a leader, which I also think is really great. So, what has been sort of a career-defining moment that you could help with other people think about their professional directory trajectory? Because that's really what you did. You you did a pivot. What did you do? Yeah, I will. You know, I, I go back 
into my, my corporate life to talk a little bit about the career defining moments. Um, sure. I think some of those moments are definitely when things don't go as you want them to. And so I'm, I'm thinking of two moments I had during my corporate career where I was ready to be a leader in a formal sense. I was ready to manage a team. I was ready to be a boss. And at the time, I'm 30 years old. I'm, I'm ready. You know, I've been leading since I was eight years old in that 4-H club. So it's like, give me a title and give me the role. And I kept trying and kept trying and kept trying to get leadership roles. And I kept being told, well, you, you've never been a leader, so you can't be a leader. Or you've never been a manager, so you can't be a manager. And I think that those those defining moments for me were um, really important because I had to step back. And as much as I disagree with that statement, and as much as it's probably one of my least favored statements in corporate America right now, um, mm-hmm. because I think there are so many ways you can be a leader without having a title, it made me step back to say, okay, well, how can I be a leader where I am so people can actually see me like that? And you have to assess, you know, what, what are people seeing me do that's, that's going to then say, we don't care. We don't care if she's never had the formal title. We see it in all the other things she's doing. So it's mm-hmm. taking that no, it's taking the, the being turned down and saying, okay, what can I actually do with this? So obviously, you know, I was upset and mad and angry in those moments. But after a while, I realized I wanted to be the leader more than I wanted to be sad and angry and mad. And so I started speaking up more, I started saying to more people, I'm ready to be in a leadership role. And it really took me being very comfortable and open to say that to a bunch of people for the phone to start to ring. And I was at home on maternity leave with my second child and an MBA classmate called that he was a colleague with me at the company I was with at the time. And he said, Hey, we've, we've got this job open. I think it'd be perfect for you. It's a leadership role. Uh, By the way, you know, it's going to require nights, weekends and travel across the country. And at the time, Marsha, I'm holding my six week old baby girl. Oh boy. Oh my gosh. Is that is now the right time. And I was talking myself out of it before I even asked for the job description. And when Mm -hmm. I got the job description, it was, it was the perfect job for me for the next step. And so it was also about answering the call when you don't think it's the right time. Because if I hadn't have said yes at that time to that role, I probably would have stuck in the non-leadership jobs for quite a while and been unhappy about it. But I stepped into that opportunity. I, on my very first day back into the office after maternity leave, I interviewed at 8.30 in the morning, and I ended up getting that job. And it allowed me to travel all over the country and meet some of the most phenomenal people I've ever met and work with organizations that have really awesome missions. So it was uh, truly a blessing in disguise that I didn't get those other roles and, and took the call even when it didn't seem like it was the right time in my personal life to do it. You know, I, I can't help but personalize this because we are having a conversation. So yeah, I'm, do I'm anecdotal about what things what what things you're saying, and it it there seems to be a trend with me lately about a couple of things in my life as I'm listening to you talk about yours. One of them is calming myself down in my yoga practice so that my shoulders really are not my earrings, but the other is the book that I'm reading along with yours, which is The Secret, and and how that law of attraction, as you're talking, 
I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about how you put out there kind of what you were looking for and you really didn't expect to want to take yourself, like you said, in this journey away from your family, but you you trusted it and you and you did it. And it doesn't sound like I don't know. Did you? I, I'm going to make a presumption. Were there any regrets? No, no regrets at all. My husband might have because it seemed like every time <laughs> I got on the airplane for the first three months, our baby had ear infection and you know oh sore boy. throat and and pink eye <laughs> but mm-hmm. he handled it like a champ so i think it it allowed Good. us it allowed us to experience our marriage in a different way too you know um he has a very flexible work environment was able to step into that so i could take this take this lead in in my job wonderful so but you quit that job and you were really good at it, and you were successful at it, and you did this, I believe, this past year or during this year. Or I guess we're in 21 now, so that year is behind us, hopefully. But we're still in the middle of this pandemic. So what held you to take the leap during such a risky time and walk away? Yeah, I have I have been on a journey for the past five years to kind of, quote, figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And uh-huh. I think what kept coming forward for me from 2016 when I started Small Town Leadership as a way to blog, to be honest with you, and then it kind of grew into other things. But the entire time I knew that I would eventually go off uh, into my own, into some form of self-employment or entrepreneurship or consulting, coaching, whatever the the gamut might be. And I determined at the end of 2019 that 2020 was going to be the year that I was going to do that. I had enough enough business lined up. I had enough trajectory. I was feeling confident. And my corporate experience had had set me up perfectly to do all these things. And then the pandemic hit. And I was like, oh, gosh, maybe this is not the right time. And uh, one, one night, it was in the late spring, probably May, June time frame, because um, all this, according to my earlier plan, was supposed to have happened by April. Uh, but April mm. came and, you know, the world was completely shut down. So right. I was sitting in my home office one night writing the book, and I was like, who quits her job in the middle of a global pandemic? And the answer that came to me so clearly, and you talking about law of attraction probably helps this come through as well, it, the, the answer that came back to me was, someone whose dreams are bigger than her fears. Whoa, whoa. Say that one more time. That's really (laughs) powerful. Someone whose dreams are greater than her fears. Wow. that, That is really, that's really powerful. Truly. Uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm stunned by the the beauty of how simple that sentence is, and yet who is listening, regardless of their age? We never know what's going to happen in our lives. I didn't expect to be a widow. I, you know, you, you, you don't ever know what's going to happen. I mean, well, okay, at some point you realize either your husband's going to die or you're going to die, but I certainly didn't expect to be a widow 12 years ago. So let me put mm-hmm. some perspective to that. But when um, when you when someone understands that their dreams are are 
that are greater than their fears and you look at your fears and say, you know, I might be a little fearful about this, but it's not going to get in the way. Wow, that's really mm-hmm. that's that's really powerful. And you had already started writing your book. I don't I don't know. Let me just mention the name of this book one more time, which is called Let Her Out: Reclaim Who You Have Always Been. And I really I love the physicality of your book, the actual tactical. I know people read books on Kindles and all those different things. I think that this is a book, frankly, that needs to be in your hands. And on your website, which is smalltownleadership.com, this book can actually just easily be purchased right there off your website. And I would recommend that people go to your website for a variety of reasons because there's all kinds of important information on that website. I love the I love the picture I love the fact that there are all of these people, right? I mean, the 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 it's just it's just so so cool. Did you did you come up with the title for this yourself? I did. I did. I had actually pitched the title and the concept of this as a TED Talk in my city in 2019 mm-hmm. and the idea was rejected. And I pivoted really quickly and submitted it for a few keynote opportunities in the spring of 2020, which got accepted, but then subsequently canceled due to COVID. So I, mm. all I really had, Marsha, was a title of a potential talk and a high-level outline of what I thought it, that talk was. And both of those things ended up manifesting themselves into this 42,000-word book. <laughs> so you have TED Talks as well. I don't. I've never been accepted. I am a, oh. I'm a serial rejected TED Talk. So, yeah, I, I put this up as an idea, and it didn't get I accepted. See. So, so no, no. So, so, once again, you know, turning kind of something that made me angry and frustrated and sad and, sure. and, and using it as a gift and opportunity. Would you like to TED Talk? I mean, is that something on your, oh, I'd like to do this someday? So here's what I'm going to say, and I, we're live on your radio show. So, I yes. It is, um, and I have typically been the go get it yourself if you want it kind of person. So I have literally been like banging on doors for the last five years to do a TED talk, and the door has not ever opened yet. So at this point, I'm just going to sit back because I know when the door is ready to open. And I have a connection for you because that's what I'm all about. So I will make sure that I connect you to my friend Mimi Donaldson, who is a coach for TED Talkers, and she has the inside scoop. So I will make sure that I connect you to Mimi, and you just never know because that's what happens in our. That's what happens in your world. It's certainly what happens in mine. And in fact, because I've had so many authors lately, um, it is just remarkable what all of what you all do, what you have that's similar, what, what you have that's that's different. Um, like I, I'd be just curious to know, um, how long did it take you to actually write this book? <laughs> well, I'm going to give you two <laughs> answers to that question. Okay. Um, one, Number one. one is that well, the, first, the first one is that I would say it took three months because I decided in April of 2020 to write the book and I had – a solid first draft by June of 2020. 
But I would also say I've been writing the book for 32 years because the inspiration came from finding the diaries and journals that I've kept since I was eight years old. So a lot of the content, content and context from the book came from those diaries. Did you, so you, you kept a diary, Dear Diary, did, you did? I did, and I did. I wrote Dear Diary. Every day. That's how um, we were taught to write into it, dear diary, right? Yes. Well, if you write it, I mean, that diary it was my closest friend when I really think about what I wrote in those books. I mean, I, so in preparation for this book, I went back and reread every single page from age eight until 25. That was when I started to drop off the regular writing a diary um, in my life. But from, you know, third grade through college and post-college life it was a near daily thing that I did now I honestly don't know anyone that's done that um and and I'm sure you went well I'm not sure so I'm going to ask you this so when you were writing in your diary as a child you you had a book and you were writing in it as you as you grew older and when technology came out did you find yourself still actually physically handwriting in some paper form form? Oh, absolutely, yes. And I still, as a matter of fact, I, I journal now, but it's a very, you know, it's a sporadic thing, and it's always it's always written um, because I a Google Doc just doesn't seem right for me in terms of I that. Um, yeah. Okay, here's another just really random question, truly. I've been thinking about asking this to many people, and you're the first person I'm asking. I'm taking notes, Natalie, while we're speaking. I cannot tell you the last time I did anything in cursive, except when you have to sign your your signature to something. I have always printed, but I learned well, in the elementary school, you know, when you learned to print, you did uppercase, lowercase, and that was how you learned to print. But my father always printed, because you've made me look at memories a lot. My father always printed in uppercase. And the only way you knew it was the beginning of a sentence, a paragraph or whatever, is that letter, how are you, the H, was taller than the O and the W. But everything is uppercase, and that is the only way I know how to print. So when you were writing in your diary, inquiring minds want to know, in what method of writing were you using? I was using cursive in the traditional sense of a capitalization at the beginning of a sentence, punctuation, Uh and... Yeah, and I still mainly write in cursive unless I'm making a to-do list, and then that's usually printed. But yeah, I'm I'm looking at notes in front of me right now, and it's they're mm-hmm. all cursive. <laughs> I'm I'm they telling you, I'm going to do some kind right. of survey on this because I think <laughs> that that's harder. I for me, I sometimes cannot read my cursive writing. I think that it's really good for your brain that you use cursive. But I can just tell you that I have been printing this way for I don't know how long. I'd be just curious to know, if you're listening out there, send me a note because I'd be curious to know what you do. <laughs> oh, I think that's pretty funny. Okay, so go, going, hand, You're going to become a handwriting analyzer before you know. Oh, sure. Show. Like I need one more responsibility. <laughs> okay, so um, I wanted to ask you about this. So I, I wanted to go back to your cover. And 
what I saw, what my mind saw when I looked at your cover was a jigsaw puzzle. And I wondered if you ever thought of your life somewhat as a puzzle. I, you know, I've never, when I thought about this question, I have never really thought of my life as a puzzle, but in looking at the cover of the book and thinking about how that came together, I see all of the people who've been in my life as a piece of that puzzle, see the, all the relationships I've had, whether they be a one-time, five-minute interaction with some level of memory or a multiple, you know, multi-year type of relationship, those all are part of my life and part of who I am. So I do see it as more of that mosaic, which is what the cover of the book includes, is this, this mosaic mm-hmm. of all these people who said, yeah, I'm willing to put my picture of her onto your book. So if people are look, pardon me, if people are looking at this book as I am right now, and I'm seeing all of these tiny, teeny, tiny little pictures, you know these people in some way. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's that's really that's really cool. I I really do think that that's. That's really uh, an incredible explanation, and, a, and just a, like I said, this is so tactical. I just, I just love this book. Uh, so, in thinking about the book a little bit more, what surprised you the most about writing your journey? I think what surprised me most was. Uh, so I'm, this is more for the writers who are listening to this. Right, the writing right. actually came. The writing actually came pretty easily to me, and I think because I've been writing apparently in cursive since I was eight years old, I, I just I love to write, and it comes easy and it flows. And so when I first talked to my book coach, her name is Kathy Fiok, and I was deciding whether or not I was going to work with her and what it looked like to write a book and. I said to her, I was like, how, how many words even is a book? Somewhere around twenty five to 30,000 words. And I looked at her, I said, oh. She said, why? I said, well, my Google Doc, I keep a running Google Doc of all the work I've ever published on my blog. I said, my Google Doc is 100,000 words. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, you're going to have to cut that down. <laughs> and so I think for me, the book, it was less of a writing experience for me and more of a curation because it truly was. And maybe, Marsha, this is where the puzzle comes together. The book was my puzzle because I was looking at diary entries and blog posts and just things I'd been thinking about but have never written down. And that's how this whole book came together. And I'm a professional coach, so I like to use what I say about that is I'm a professional question asker. So the thing you've noticed about the book is that after every single section, there's a list of questions that the person reading can look back and reflect on his or her own experience. And then a couple of times in the book, there's actually a really like intensive series of questions that you know are also available for download on my website because I want people to really dig into them. And so the surprise for me was just how the pieces of that book puzzle all came together because going into it, I didn't know what it would look like. I didn't have a firm outline. I didn't know what the sections would be. I didn't know how it would break down into chapters. And so I let all that kind of unfold as the writing process unfolded, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. Mm-hmm. I do I do like that about the book. I like the fact that at the end of each chapter, you sort of, um, like chapter one, remembering through photos, 
And it's interesting because everything is so digital today. It's like, oh my goodness. But but I do have I have I have pictures of my father when he was in the military. I have pictures of grandparents and aunts and uncles. And then of course I have pictures of myself. But as an example, in chapter 1 you talk about remembering through photos. And then I like what you do. You say pause, reflect and take action. Photos of her. What's an action item? Where can you find pictures of her? If you don't have access to photos, what images can you help can help you remember her? Once you locate pictures, find out that truly find out one that truly represents her as you wish to remember her. Do you want to remember yourself in Girl Scouts? Do you want to remember yourself at 4-H club? Do you want to remember yourself on a camping trip? Do you want to remember yourself dancing with your friend in the backyard doing the Bristol stomp? What about her picture? What about her in this picture do you appreciate? And what about her do you see in yourself today? Whoa. Whoa, what about her do you see in yourself today? And I'm and I also just want to reiterate, what do you see about him in yourself today? Because you absolutely can work with this book. My brother and I, you know, would be so interesting. Oh, my gosh. So my brother is two weeks, uh, two weeks. He's two years younger than me, just like you're two years younger than your sister. Wouldn't it be interesting if your sister was to take this book and compare her journey to your journey? What if my brother took his journey and did this book and we compared notes and went, Larry, I never knew that about you all this time. All this time. Mm. I guess because it just didn't get discussed. I mean, it's so, it, you know, people will dive into where they want to dive in, but in these in these days right now where you can't really go too many places and so it, it allows for a lot of introspection, I, your books, the timeliness of your book is just sensational in my opinion. And the fact that you do it in cursive is just really cracks me up. But eventually you had to type it, I realize. But obviously you I can did. read your cursive. Oh, my gosh. So, Most of the time, exactly. Well, I love what you said, too, about, I. you know, one of the things I did in the front of the book is so I had an editorial board of eight people reviewed the book ahead of time of it going to my copy editor and several of them said, give me a guide, like, tell me how to get the most out of this book. And I took that to heart. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's so true. Like, how do I get the most out of this book? And one of the ideas is read it with a friend or your sister or your sibling or your mother or your daughter uh, or your book club. I said, this is a four-month book club book because you won't be able to shut up by learning so many new things (laughs) about each other because it's just – Yes, things we don't talk about because it's just not a normal part of our vernacular. It's not a normal part of our interaction. And that's what I'm excited about because, you know, she, the person who was eight years old writing that diary, was so fun and so spunky. And, you know, she dimmed over time. And it was, you know, a lot of life's responsibilities that dimmed her. It was uh, societal expectations. It was my own inner voice. And, more you know, the work I've done over the last five years has really been to bring her back and I like her and I want the world to see her and isn't it cool thinking that 
we all hope to be let out one of these days. Uh, it will happen, right? We just don't know when. But when right. it's time to be let out, won't it be very cool if she's the one who emerges, not the person who's been dimmed, but instead the person who's been reawakened a little bit? Right. That's that's a really that's a really important message, not the one that's been dimmed. I think we've probably all, in some ways, have felt dimmed because you know if if life was as it normally would be would is the game tonight at the ohio is it in your state or is it in alabama no it's it's somewhere else i couldn't even tell you but it's a it's a bowl right. game so it's it's yeah, a bowl that's, that's right it's a bowl game would you would you as a family have perhaps even gone to it no not at this stage with our girls being so little bucket list for right. in life right <laughs> It's, it's interesting. I, I've given up a lot of things that I enjoy doing. Sports is, is a big part of my life as well. And, you know, I'm not being able to go to the professional basketball games, both men and women, not being able to go to the Pantages Theater and seeing, you know, the musicals that I've enjoyed over the years, you know, just actually enjoying a meal with friends. I have found mm-hmm. other ways of um, keeping myself lit um, when you talk about dimmed, um, I, I joke often about the fact that, you know, you can only spend so much time in front of a screen, and there needs to be balance in life. And and my, my way of describing that is taking my camera for a walk. Now, I happen to go with my camera. I suppose I'm walking as well. But I enjoy the opportunity, even if I'm by myself, to just get outdoors and as I mentioned, I live in this community of Westchester, and there's never a time when I'm walking outside where I'm not talking to somebody that's walking by. We just left. We just lost one of the most important figures in Los Angeles this last week with Tommy Lasorda passing. And for any sports person, whether they were a Dodger fan or not, you didn't not know who he was. And when you see people out and about wearing Dodger shirts, you know, it's it's a time for reflection and say, even if it's just, you know, I got gotcha, you, you know, go Dodgers or whatever. There's that way of, of communicating. And so I think I'm always evolving. And I think that this book is an excellent way of evolving as well. I, I really, I really do. How do you think that listeners can benefit by the message of your book? I think it's by it's it's moving forward by looking back. I think a lot of times we we don't want to look back because we're actually focused on those those negative things. That time we did get caught, the time that we did do the wrong thing, the time the thing didn't go our way. We're we're so predisposed. We're predisposed to go back to those negative times when what this book is asking you to do is to say kind of forget that. Like, yes, that's part of your story, but what I want you to focus on here are those times when you were lit up, you were shining bright, you were full of life. And if, if this book can help anybody connect to that part of themselves even 10% more than what they're doing today, I guarantee they're going to feel better because of that. And that's, that's, at the very, very bottom, you know, lowest level of what I hope people gain is that. It's just a different way of them looking at their life, their life's experience, because you and I both know when we're looking for the good is when we can find the good more frequently. Agreed. 
tell me because I'm not sure if I didn't listen and pay close enough attention. So I, I'm looking at your website right now. I'm looking at the ability to, to purchase the book. Did you say that there's a PDF or something that has some of these questions written that people could actually download once they've purchased the book, or did I misinterpret you? No, that they go to letheroutcom they'll find an entire resources section where there's a four or five things that are free for download on that page. So it's at the it's at the book web page, not my small town leadership web page. Okay, I, you know what? I didn't have that up in front of me, and I should have. So letheroutcom okay. um, you do have that there, and and I and I will make sure that I include that um, in our follow up so that people will be able to. Um, to do that because I think, you know, and then maybe as people start doing it, I should I should do. And the survey says how many of you wrote in it and how many and what style did you use? <laughs> I'm so curious about that now. Oh my and God, I so, would like to know. Did you write uh, it in like or did you <laughs> did you print it? And if you well, printed it, was I, it all I, and an I didn't uppercase? make them. I didn't make them editable PDF one because I just wasn't technologically savvy enough to get that kind of document loaded. Um, and two, because I do think that if people have the capability to print things out, like they're beautifully Absolutely. designed I, and write it down, you know, just get it out of your brain and onto the paper. I I so agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. So letterout.com is out there right now. And why don't I find it? Um, because I want to look at it while I'm speaking to you. So let me do this one more time. There you are. Letter out. Reclaim. There. That's excellent. I will. I will certainly make sure that um, that people are. Um, and it's it's great. You have a lot of. Oh, here's the book bonuses and resources. That's perfect. There's the resource page. That's ideal. All right. So, um, in keeping with our questions here, one of the questions that I was a little bit curious about because I have had a lot of really wonderful authors that have written their own story, so to speak. But what is different? Do you think about your book and the millions of other leadership books that are out there right now? I think one of the big things that's different from this book than many books, and I, you know, I certainly not it's not going to be every book. And I call this out in the introduction: is I'm very clear up front that I have not led a tragic or triumphant life in the sense of what we think of, you know, Hollywood style tragedy and triumph. And I think a lot of the most popular leadership self-help type books are, are formulated in some something like that: horrible tragedy happens here's my leadership tip for you to overcome that or huge triumph happens. I'm going to deconstruct it to show you how I got there. And I would like to say that I lead a pretty vanilla life in middle America. I'm a suburban mom. And I'm not saying that to diminish my life at all, but I'm saying that no. there's no, you know, there's, there's no big up. There's no big down in my life. And so I think what's different from mine is there. That my experience is more similar to everybody in America than than the people who are writing those tragedy and triumph books. So I feel like that's what's different is it's more accessible and relatable because people can pick this up and say, okay, it's okay for me to feel meh is, is you know my technical term about my job because of the following reasons, or it's okay for me to feel a little disconnected in my community for the following reasons. I don't have to feel bad that 
the, the sky didn't fall, that, you know, tragedy didn't strike for me to just be a little off. And this mm-hmm. book can help me get back on track and recognize what, what made it made me start to think those things in the first place and took myself back up by bringing her, him back and, and moving forward with life. I like that. You know, it's funny, Natalie. I, I got to ask this question because I'm looking at your page. All right. So I am presuming that this adorable picture of this goat and you, um, is there a 4-H connection to this picture with you and the goat? <laughs> Uh, no, there is not, but there no? is a beautiful story about that goat. So, um, the, those, so those pictures were all taken in the fall of 2018. I was doing a photo shoot and a video shoot for my, my website. The book was not even, it's not something I was thinking about at that point in time. And I worked with one of my husband's college friends, groomsmen. So I think it was a guy my, my husband had been in a wedding with at one point in time. And he lives in the town over and does a photo photography. So I said, hey, hey, Aaron, I uh, want you to do my photos, and I want them taken at a red barn. Like, that's my only criteria is find a good red barn to get these pictures taken near. And so Aaron, bless his heart, lives out in the country a little more. And he, after work, like, drives around to, like, find the right red barns. And so my videographer and I, who are, we're both from the same suburb, drive out into the country to meet, to meet Aaron. And he's like, all right, I've got the perfect place for us. And we pull up, and it's a, a, a bright red barn. It's actually where I stand with, in front of my headshot, and they have all these animals. But the beautiful part of the story, Marsha, is that um, – my friend Aaron said that, you know, he, that he, he had some tragedy in his life and there was somebody who took care of him and his family during this time. And so he's just like blindly going out into the country looking at barns. And this is the house he decides, this is the barn for this photos. I'm going to go like knock on the door and um, ask for permission. Can we do this? And so he did this in advance for our photo shoot. And he said when he went and knocked on the door, um, the person who answered was, family members with that person who took care of him and his family during their tragedy time in their life. And he didn't know that. Oh my, the law of attraction. Oh my gosh. You know, you just don't see red barns in LA. Now I know you were, you were, I think, were you in the Bay area when you were in California? (laughs) I was. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's not to say that California doesn't have farming because we do, but well, you know if you live it's in a biggest—it's big, one of the biggest industries there. So, yeah. Exactly, but I can I can assure you that my most favorite memories, whenever I would go to New England, which which was more than just the fall, but definitely the my favorite time, I must have hundreds of pictures of red barns, and I didn't care if they were well kept up and well painted or if they were kind of peely and kind of rustic and (laughs) I was so I don't know if it was the color or it's just that it wasn't what I was accustomed to seeing but I the fact that the barn is there and then in this goat this goat I swear this goat has what's what's on the goat's ear that looks like a piece of jewelry which obvious is it the way it's tagged oh goodness Oh my goodness! I, are you still there? Oh no! I can tell you right now that Natalie's call just dropped. I'm looking at my keyboard, and I'm hoping that she calls back. And if she does, 
which I'm hoping she does, I will once again be able to open up her mic right away. Oh, I'm so disappointed because, oh, goodness, this is what happens. Oh, there she is. There she is. Oh, goodness, thank you. You're back. Oh, that scared me, Natalie. Holy cow. No, I was going, I was trying to go look at a picture of the goat, and I totally hit the wrong button. So oh, that's I okay. So I am technologically savvy. Not I'm, I'm, a but problem. I, but I want to look. <laughs> not a problem. I need to remember. So let me just this tell you. Gonna, this, this goat is getting more airtime than we thought. Then it so should, right? The goat has a little tag on its ear um, because most most livestock does have some sort of identifier on it. So that's Got my it. guess as to what the tag is. It is not some kind of jewelry that the goat owners put on it so it looked Got nice. It. But, yeah, we there were goats there that day, chickens, geese, cows. Mm, but they, they – they agreed to allow the goat out on a leash so I could get some photo ops with it. You know, you know, it's so funny. This is live radio. This is how it works. You know, it's funny, and I don't know if other people think this as well because words matter so much to me. Like the word pivot, which is obviously we use we, we hear that term in basketball, and now we hear it used all the time today in making changes. The same with the word goat. If you If you watch Jeopardy! <laughs> You know, now we know that the word G-O-A-T means the greatest of all times. You know, we, we you know, right? It's it's like holy cow. Yeah. It's, it's it's just so funny. And um, and when I when I see that word goat, I because I because what did I do? Of course, I wrote it. It's all in capital letters, and it's like, oh yeah, the goat, the greatest of all times. There you have it. That's so funny. So. I'd like to just little just talk. I want well. First of all, I do want to ask you this: Do you are you working on another book? I'm not working on another book. I need a little time off. I have thought okay. about what the next book. I have thought about what the sequel could be, and I the and honestly, like you could talk to me a year from now and be like, yeah, that didn't happen. But if if I were to write a book today, like somebody said, Natalie, we're going to give you a book deal and. It's anything you want, but it needs to be done in two weeks. <laughs> the one, the book I could do right now in two weeks would be called What She Said. So instead of, you know, play on Let Her Out, it's What She Said. Because along with all the diaries I found, I also found all of these essays and school papers and scholarship applications and those ancillary types of things that we have, you know, papers of when we were growing up. And I'm and I'm just marveling once again at what she said when she was 14 or 12, and I could see that turning into a book compilation. I could too. You know what? And I could see it kind of like Back to the Secret. It's not just written by Rhonda Byrne. She she has um, people that are contributing to this book throughout this whole book, and that might be – you know that that I like that. I I I think that what she said is really important, and I and and maybe you know like you said you want to take a, a a break. And and did I understand you correctly? So you started you wrote the book from from April um, from April to May to April to June April May June basically three months. Yeah. But did you say yeah. it was thirty years in the baking of those memories? 32. I turned 42 40 last years. year and I've been writing since I was eight. Yep. Okay. I wanted to get that accurate. <laughs> so with everything else that you do, because you have a couple of children, 
I, I, I believe your husband is a, is a professor. Is that right? Professor okay. at Ohio State, yes. Okay. Um, so what do you do for me time? What do you do to balance and have fun and, and have some Natalie time? <laughs> I, um, I do a few things for fun. So I have been into physical fitness for quite a while. So I am a runner and I, while I, while living in the Bay area became an endurance athlete. So oh. right now I'm training for right now I'm training for a half marathon, which I consider kind of the lower rung of the endurance athletic event, but we'll be picking up where some of the events got canceled. So I'm a Peloton person and a uh, half marathoner. And I, I like uh, slapstick TV. So the <laughs> show that the show that got my husband and I through early quarantine days was Superstore, uh, which kind of they you know they parody kind of Walmart type ideas, mm-hmm. and it was really funny. Um, and so I, I do keep up with a few TV shows. And honestly, like for me, um, talking to people one on one is one of my yeah. favorite things to do for me time because I do. I do so much with like big groups of people in my work and communicating to the masses. And so I think what I've learned over this past year is not to take for granted those one-on-one opportunities. And it just feels like a really big treat for me when Mm -hmm. I have that time Mm -hmm. set up and it's not in the context of a client call. It's not in the context of like pitching business, but instead it's really just humans connecting on a human level. You know, there's so much about you that I like. I, I I wish that you know we were neighbors. Would you be mine, right? <laughs> but um, everything turns into a song with me. But what you just said is what I could 100% relate to, and it always touches. It always makes me touch my heart when I say this, and and I say this to people when I'm outdoors, which is that one-on-one talking to people. That's what fills my tank. That's what fills me up. That's what makes me human to human, person to person. That's why doing these shows every week is so meaningful to me. And sure, there's a lot of work that goes into this. I I would be kidding anybody that thinks that I just throw this together and it's like, oh, whatever, whatever. (laughs) No. There's a lot behind the scenes that happens to do these shows week after week for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of shows. But why do I do it? You know, that was something that a marketing person asked me. It's like, well, why? Why do you do it? And and it's such a simple answer. It's precisely what you just said. It's when you have the opportunity to share an experience with another human, whether it's sitting at Starbucks, whether it's taking a walk, whether it's, I, I can't believe, so you have been an, an endurance at, an endurance athlete, so that means you have done marathons, right? Correct. Did you, did you do, so when you, so when, so have you been a tri-marathon person? In other words, have you also swam and, and walked and ran? That was where I started. I started with triathlons and did okay. triathlons from 2006, seven and eight. 2008 wow. switched over to running only because we were living in Ohio. It's a lot harder to do triathlons here and right. have been doing endurance running ever since then. I have a friend in my Rotary Club that's um, an Uber, at, uh, no, what is, oh, goodness, what do you call that? An ultra athlete. 
which oh, is yeah, like, that's a little like, too much for me. Oh, God, that's that really. And he does it for fundraising efforts. So, I mean, you know, that's what motivates him to do that. But we all need to find our own motivation, right, Natalie? I mean, that's really, that's really the it bottom is. line. Yeah. Absolutely. It really is, and that's and that's I think another thing about this book that that if people are looking more than ever to just maybe just rediscover. I mean, I I, I love what you say when you say on the back of your book, remember her, connect to her, remove the barriers to her. Everything wasn't perfect when we were children. Everything's not perfect today. If it was perfect, we'd be out, you know, hugging our children and my my adult children, and I'd be flying to Tucson to see my son and daughter-in-law. You know, those things just can't happen right now. So you have to make the most of where we are today and send that positive energy out there into the universe. It, it'll bounce back and hit hit you smack in the heart where you want it most. So. You know, I'm just so very grateful that you've taken the time with me today to share your story and letting her out because I I think what you're doing is just phenomenal I'm, and I'm so grateful that you've been a part of this with me today. Well, I appreciate being here. I am glad we can make this connection all the way across the country and it's been really fun. It has. So, go team. You have a great win tonight. But I will look at this day as a win for me. And, um, and you know, when you decide to write that next book about what she said, whenever that might be, you know, you're always welcome back to join me anytime. I, I love having repeat guests. It's fun to see, well, where, what have you been doing since we last spoke? But for now, I will just wish you the very best. Stay healthy, health to, your, to yourself, to your children, to your loved ones. And just thank you so much again for joining me today. It has been a pleasure. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye.